Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. For those of you who've been to an event of EIs before, I'm sorry to repeat myself. And for those of you who haven't, I will tell you very briefly that our role is to chronicle everything that the British comment media say on key issues of the day. And part of the thing we feel assists us in doing this is to hold debates and events such as this where key issues are discussed both by the people making policy and the people commenting on it and the people informing that policy and that comment. I'm absolutely delighted that on their 25th anniversary, World Vision have not only partnered with this, with us on this event, but have initiated the uh, event itself, and that Newsweek have very kindly joined us, and not only joined us, but given us their, um, their star turn in the UK, their bureau chief, Stryker Maguire, to chair it. I would just say very briefly that um, Stryker will lead the speakers through their own presentations and then we will open to comments from you. Um, this event is being recorded and podcast, so in case you were thinking of making any injudicious remark that could be erased once outside, there's no parliamentary privilege in this particular room, it's all live and on the record as it were. Before, I'll just hand you over to uh, Stryker to say that he's one of the most garlanded journalists of his generation. He's been in the UK as the Bureau Chief for Newsweek for over a decade and he really epitomises I think everything that is good about journalism's ability to report and to query and to bring issues to the fore. So I'm particularly delighted that he's going to chair this event. I'm also uh, slightly unusually going to single out the Minister for coming along because to say that Ministers have a full diary is a bit of an understatement. I think only parents of infant children know the levels of sleeplessness and general sensory deprivation that it involves. And uh, without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Stryker and enjoy the event. Thank you. Thank you. We'll do it from here, right? Okay. Yes. Uh, I think what Julia was saying about me is just something about my age, about uh, garlanded and senior and so forth. But thank you very much, Julia. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, what I'll do is I'll introduce uh, each panelist uh, one at a time. And, um, and then, uh, as Julia said, open it up to, to your comments and I hope a lot of uh, very good questions. So we will start with Dr. Hani Elbana. He is the co-founder and president of Islamic Relief Worldwide, uh, an international relief and development organization which aims to alleviate poverty and suffering of the world's poorest people. Uh, he was born in Egypt. Uh, he did his medical studies at Al-Assad <coughs> University in Cairo, where he also obtained and a diploma in Islamic studies. Uh, he went on to further his medical training and completed a doctorate of medicine in fetal pathology at the University of Birmingham Medical School. Got that in 1991. He's a member of the Three Faiths Forum in the UK and was selected to be a member of the West Islamic World Dialogue Council of 100 Leaders Group, which is part of the World Economic Forum. Dr. Hani, maybe you could go ahead. 
Uh, good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, tonight. To start with, it irritates me very much when we divide people to faith-based organization and non-faith-based organization. Because I believe strongly, as a Muslim, that we are all having faith. A faith which comes from God, or a faith which can make for ourselves. A prophet which you can follow, or a prophet which you can make. So really, to start with, we are all faith-based organization. Whatever we can, because the, the quality of human being being created by God, whether we differ on the status of God or not, this is beside the point, I'm not going to discuss it. But actually, God is a God. And the man can make himself a God. We can choose anything to be a God. But to be very honest, faith-based and non-faith-based is not the relevant. Because we all have faith, whether we are secularists, atheists, and others. Atheism itself is a faith. This is where I came from as a Muslim. Religion, for me, is not a personal matter only. It's a personal matter reflected in action to save and help the community. You can't keep religion to yourself. Religion has to develop yourself, your soul, as an individual. Then once you develop through your religion, you have to come out to develop the community. So when we talk about development, development is not a new phenomenon. It's a phenomenon which started long time ago, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. If we talk about Jesus as an example, he came to develop humanity morally, socially, economically, you see, and everything. Because he is somebody who was a leader of the community, came chosen by God to, to lead as a community organizer, as a leader of a faith-based organization, okay? So he developed. So when we talk, we link development only to secular movement or recently movement in the 20th or 21st century, we are mistaken of not understanding the history. When we talk about history back, development is not a new phenomenon. And it comes from the reflection of the faith of the believers in their mission. Could it be socialist, communist, atheist, Muslims, Christian, Jews, Hindus, anybody. So really I reflect my love to God to develop my community and to develop humanity. This is the second point which I would like uh, uh, to, to mention. The third point actually, we need when we talk about ourselves in the boardrooms to look at whom we are working for and who are the owners of our organizations. Are, are these the people in the boardroom or are these the people in the community themselves, the recipient, the beneficiary, the elderly, the sick? And we need to understand their faith as well. When we look at them, when we deal with them, do recognize that they have faith who we can respect? Do recognize they have belief and values that actually we can share and we can respect as well? Or we treat them as numbers, as tents, as number of boxes, pair of shoes, and others? This is when we come back to this reality of our faith and their faith. The last point which I would like to declare, because I've got a very nice uh, chairman and a very beautiful colleague next to me. What about these two? Uh, very, very <laughs> <laughs> I would like today, this, this is one of my dreams, because all the beneficiaries whom, are, whom, are, whom, whom, whom I say, 
They are the owners of any charity organization. The widows, the orphans, the distressed, the homeless, the sick. We deal with their money. It's not our money. They are very vulnerable. My question is, can we sign? Can we sign together something to protect their faith by not proselytizing them, by not trying to convert them, by not trying to uh, change their way of life because they are vulnerable? And to let the, them to have the freedom of choice. I, as a Muslim, can sign it now because I believe it. This is what God subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Holy Quran. Don't compel anybody. Don't use the opportunity of the vulnerable people to convert them. It's entirely up to them to choose the religion. So leave them alone to make the free choice. Because God has given them the mind to think and the vision to see the best way for their lives. This is to conclude in my four and a half minutes. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Our next panelist is Shahid Malik, uh, who was born in uh, 1967 in Burnley. Uh, in May 2005, at the last election, he became the first British-born Muslim to be elected to Parliament and has since served as a member of Parliament for Dewsbury in the north of England. Uh, earlier this year, Gordon Brown uh, named Shahid Malik uh, Minister for International Development, and he will have and does have responsibility for DFID's work in South Central and East Asia, Europe, the Caribbean, and Latin America. Thank you very much. Can, can I just uh, just thank uh, um, uh, the organizations involved today for inviting me, uh, which are World Vision, Editorial Intelligence, and Islamic Relief. And it really is good to be here because uh, I'm somebody who uh, is of faith and obviously is very keen on development. Uh, I think it was Lenin who said that there are decades when nothing happens and then there are weeks when decades happen. And we've lived and lived in an era when we can honestly say that there are weeks when decades have happened. And if you look back, perhaps that, not that long ago, who would have thought that Reagan and Gorbachev would shake hands, perestroika ensued, the Berlin Wall come tumbling down? Who would have thought that Mandela and de Klerk would shake hands and apartheid come tumbling down? Who would have thought Rabin and Arafat would shake hands and bring hope to the Middle East? Who would have thought that Trimble, Adams and Hume would sign something called the Good Friday Agreement and bring Northern Ireland to the peace that it enjoys today. But change isn't always a, a positive thing. And who would have thought after some 50 years and the loss of six million Jewish lives, Europe would once more witness the horrors of extreme nationalism and hatred as we saw in Bosnia, Kosovo and elsewhere. Who would have thought after some 40 years and 60 years of UN resolutions, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict would still be alive. And in many ways, the Kashmir conflict still be alive. And who would have thought in 2007, in this new uh, uh, enlightened millennium, we'd still have uh, uh, just under a billion people living on less than a, a, dollar, a, a dollar a day. Uh, I think that in many ways puts in context and focus some of the, the challenges that we have. And I suppose the question is in many ways, is faith a force 
for good in international development. Dr. Hani has been, in his own enigmatic way, been very philosophical uh, about the uh, about the, uh, the, the, uh, the the faith uh, dimension. Uh, on one level, the the figures speak for themselves about the government's belief that it is a force for good. For example, last year, Diffid spent over 23 million through UK faith-based organisations, which support a range of activities and actions. Action to give some of the poorest people in the world a voice in decisions that affect their lives, such as Christian Aid helping communities in Bolivia to uphold their land rights and understand their civil rights, getting members of the indigenous population elected onto the local council for the first time ever. Action to empower poor communities to deal with the challenges they face, such as the African network of religious leaders living with HIV. Challenging stigma and advocating for better prevention, care, support and treatment. And actually, Dr Hani, your own organisation, I believe this month, is having an event in South Africa, which will be the first time really that uh, Muslims are starting to tackle the, the issue of HIV and AIDS in an overt fashion and facing up to the, the reality. Uh, action to help poor people hold their governments to account, such as CAFOD, helping a local NGO in East Timor to monitor public expenditure. In 2006, the lobbying of this NGO forced an Indonesian construction company to come back and complete a road construction project that had been shoddily finished, a road that was vital for access to markets, schools and clinics. Action to deliver services in sub-Saharan Africa. Faith-based organisations are estimated to provide more than 50% of the healthcare there, and up to 90% of HIV, AIDS, palliative care, including physical, emotional and spiritual support. Action to build and sustain a vibrant, assertive international civil society, encouraging donors such as ourselves to rethink policies and to innovate, and holding donors such as ourselves to account for promises we make. Fortunately, our recent spending review settlement has once again demonstrated the UK Government's seriousness about doing just that. And I was having a chat earlier on and somebody said, are you, are you happy with the settlement? And I said, I'm very happy with the settlement, but I'm not surprised by the settlement because it's this Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, that actually has led the way in many ways on international development in Africa and elsewhere and it was a commitment that he gave that means now we're on track to reach the 0.7% uh, of our GNI on aid by 2013. But I want to thank members of the panel and audience who have campaigned, marched and worked to make such an outcome possible. That's the power I think of partnership working. And I must highlight the vital work of the faiths in building support in the UK for international development. I've got to say, this is one of my hobby horses, really. Uh, you've heard of the concept of policing by consent. I think increasingly we're going to have to do international development by consent. The truth is, it is relatively esoteric, I kid you not. Uh, you might naively believe, and I doubt it for a second, that there's a big constituency, a big bank of opinion out there that supports international development. I think you'd find something perhaps slightly different. 
People aren't really aware of the amount of money that we give to international development. I think if they were, they might well be frightened. Many might not. Uh, I can well understand people saying, well, hang on a second, what about my school, what about my hospital? And I don't say that it's wrong for them to say that, but I just say it's for us to make those arguments. And you are our natural allies as we scale up to 2013 to give us some of that consent and you're desperately needed because I think the consensus we have at the moment is much more fragile than perhaps some of us would like to admit. And I can see it splintering in the not so distant future if those people in this room who are completely sold on this from probably just a moral perspective, because that's certainly me and I think it's probably everybody in this room, aren't actually doing more to build that consensus, to build the foundation that we need. Um, I, I, I mean, British support for international has been, without doubt, outstanding. Uh, Live Aid, Jubilee 2000, Make Poverty History. But I just hope that we don't lose sight of the reality that I know exists in my constituency. Because I, I know that I've had letters in my local newspaper saying he's giving millions here. And what about the local school, the local hospital, so on and so forth. At a practical level, I've probably said yes to the question, is faith a force for good in development? But what lies behind that? Why do I believe that faith-based organisations have a distinctive role? First, for the most part of the world's people, faith is simply fundamental to understanding the challenges of life and their solutions. At, the lev at that level, faith is fundamental to any approach to development. Second, faiths bring explicit ethical and moral values to the table, such as selflessness, service and compassion. That's not to say that faiths have the monopoly on morality, but it does seem to encourage a healthy focus on individuals and their welfare, in addition to the structures and processes which affect their lives. But I will of course accept that man, and it is usually man, can manipulate faith and religion for violent and destructive ends. Third, trust. Faith is often a part of the identity of individuals and groups. Faith groups can inspire confidence and trust, giving them the legitimacy to represent the interests of the poor. Now a few words on a particular value of faith. The, the ability of faiths to join up to meet shared aims. I think one of the things that we're brilliant at in this country is celebrating diversity. I don't think we've been that good at celebrating commonality. I think if you look in this room, it's very diverse. But actually the values that we have in this room are common, I think, to most people in this room. And I think if we acknowledge that a bit more, and we shared it a bit more, and we even perhaps celebrated it, then that diversity might be more digestible in those areas where currently it isn't that digestible. Uh, but by joining up, interfaith work has the potential to reduce the risk of conflict, build peace in conflict situations, and keep that peace. And away from conflict situations, interfaith efforts can reinforce critical development messages by the mere fact that different faiths concur on central issues. In Ethiopia, for example, Islamic Relief and CAFOD have a joint action plan to respond to emergencies. And with the support of international faith-based organisations, Christian Islamic leaders are working in the Sudan and Yemen to tackle HIV and AIDS. And CAFOD and Islamic Relief have worked together on the tsunami response in Indonesia. Challenges? Of course there are challenges. But a debate needs some challenges. And of course we face those. Let me focus on two to finish. 
First, let's not shy away from the reality that faith is not always a force for good, something I alluded to uh, earlier on. Uh, faith can ferment conflict, just as it can help to build peace, and faith can reinforce the power structures of society, rather than giving the poor, giving the poor a voice to challenge those structures and hold those structures accountable. And faith can encourage the taboos and well-meaning, but eventually damaging beliefs that acts against people's welfare. In these cases, let's talk openly. For example, HIV and unsafe abortion. These are complex and difficult issues, but also real to the lives of many people, especially poor people. I believe that faith-based organisations have a role to play in supporting debate on important issues like these, as I know, for example, Tear Fund and others have done with their members on HIV and sexual health. Second, as the Prime Minister said to the UN in July, we face a development emergency. The MDGs will not be met by 2015 or even 2050 unless governments, faiths, private sector, civil society, others come together to meet the challenges facing our world today. And I, I perhaps just want also to say at this point, and I'm uh, on the home straight now, Chair, ju ju just, just, just really by way of, of, of winding up, uh, I, I challenge this everywhere and I use every platform. You know, we're very proud of the great British tradition of tolerance. And, and I'm going to be slightly controversial and say, you know, put your tolerance in the bin. Because actually, I don't want to be tolerated. Women in senior management don't want to be tolerated. People with disabilities do not want to be tolerated. Poor people in this country and around the world do not want to be tolerated. People living with chronic disease don't want to be tolerated. Tolerance is something that is fickle and is skin deep. You know, you cut yourself, you tolerate the pain. You miss a bus, you tolerate the weight. These are hardly positive experiences. We need to move to society in a world that isn't about tolerance, but is about acceptance. And not just acceptance, but mutual acceptance. And that is something which is much stronger and much more sustainable, especially with some of the challenges we have in this country and across the world. And my challenge is simply, are you all up for it? And I suspect that the answer is simply yes. And I, I remind everybody constantly, and at the bottom of my letterhead, I've got this quote from Edmund Burke, that for evil to prevail, all that's required, and it's not just evil, but for poverty to prevail, for disease to prevail, all that's required is that good people do nothing. And in many ways, I'm preaching to the converted, because you're not the kind of good people that are about doing nothing. But our challenge, actually, is how do we engage with those good people outside this room that are doing nothing, who are vital if international development is to work, if poverty is to be eradicated, if disease is to be minimised, and if the quality of life of all the people in this world is to be improved. Thank you. I was nearing my Betty Boothroyd <laughs> moment when I was, could stop you. But uh, anyway, thank you very much. Our, our next panelist um, clearly came from the furthest distance to get here. It's really nice to have you. Uh, Dr. Jayakumar Christian is the National Director of World Vision India. And he leads a team of close to 1,400 community workers and staff reaching 5,000 communities across India. 
Dr. Jayakuma earned a bachelor's degree from Madras University, a master's in social work from the Madras School of Social Work, and a master's from the Fuller School of World Missions uh, in California, where he also uh, got his doctorate degree. He joined World Vision in 1978, prior to which he was a development worker in a village in North India. Dr. Jayakumar, please. Thank you very much. Uh, I've been enjoying the conversation. I just forgot that this was a debate. It was uh, uh, learning from our esteemed colleagues and waiting for the other uh, presentation, too. I speak uh, from a slightly different perspective, and I speak from a perspective of being an organization that is very operational. Uh, we are out there among the poor in the communities. I did visit them just day before yesterday. I, I know them and I feel with them. And I want to bring to the table a slightly different perspective for you to consider. <clears throat> Let me explain this. Faith as a motivation, I think, is popularly understood, commonly accepted. Faith is a, is a motivation for good works. I think all religions would come together on that. Understanding the faith of the people we serve is also a position that is popular and uh, commonly accepted. But I want to suggest that we, if we claim, if our development organizations claim that we are seeking to do sustainable development, there is no way we can do sustainable development without engaging faith at a faith level. That's my basic thesis, that this whole thing of being nice about faith, you are hurting sustainable development. Uh, ignoring faith, uh, and I would I agree with the earlier presentation which suggested that faith has been the reason very often for many of the conflicts around the world. But don't throw the baby with the bathwater. <coughs> we, we are serious about addressing and producing sustainable, sustainable development. We cannot do it without addressing issues of faith, encounter at the faith level, at the belief level. And I want to say this from uh, the perspective that I want to take is not look at development, but look at poverty. The, the, the basic common issue that we are all addressing when we talk about development. The first one that I want to suggest, uh, World Vision as a Christian organization is, not, is clearly committed to not exploiting the vulnerability of the poor. As an organization, that does not come in our dictionary anyway. We are against proselytism and would not exploit people, the poverty or the, the vulnerability of the poor. And I want to place five thoughts for you to consider. One is poverty is about relationships that have gone wrong. When we talk about poverty and development, we're not talking about socioeconomics that have gone wrong. We're talking about relationships that have gone wrong, relationships that have become abusive and oppressive. We are not just talking about a few numbers that have gone wrong. We're really talking about people with feelings and whose relationships have gone wrong and have become, since then, have become oppressive and abusive. And relationships are shaped and molded by worldview. And worldview among the people we serve is often shaped and molded by religion. There is no way, I would like to suggest, we can address poverty without engaging at the worldview level. Any attempt to just change the socioeconomics, we're either fooling ourselves or just simply scratching the surface. 
We need to address the issues of worldview and we need to look at issues of religion. We need to en engage at that level. Development requires engagement at the worldview level and community psychologists would affirm this. There is no empowerment without addressing worldview issues. The second uh, uh, aspect about poverty that I want to bring to your consideration is poverty is at the end of the day about powerlessness. <clears throat> it is not simply about a few uh, people being marginalized for a while. It's chronic, it's uh, over generations people have been powerless and we have been in the situations and you sit in communities, you see this over and over again. Ideology related to power needs to be addressed if we need to address powerlessness. We cannot just address power by simply playing the game of power better. We need to redefine power itself. So if we are serious about sustainable development, we cannot address powerlessness without taking an alternative position on power, a redefined understanding of power a redefined understanding of power that will not abuse the poor over and over again. Development agencies cannot produce sustainable development by simply playing the game of power better through all our community organization methods and techniques. We see this over and over again. Just one-upmanship will not work in development. We need to take an alternative understanding of power to the table if we are serious about sustainable development. If we are just simply doing development for the sake of doing because we have resources, that's a different game. We are talking about sustainable development and that's one of the common issues that we are all, is, is the commonality that we celebrate here today. We need to look at the issues of power and challenge the rules of the game, not play the game better. For too long, development agencies have played the game better. We need to now challenge the rules of the game which has kept the poor poor for generations. We need an alternative that redefines power. The third aspect about poverty that I want to bring to the table, for too long, development industry has talked about poverty as a dignity and a justice issue. I want to suggest that we need to go beyond. Poverty is about identity that has been marred. Identity that has been marred. The marring of the identity is the prelude to injustice. Once I name my landless, my casual laborer, or the one who comes to work on my land, as simply a tool for production, as a landless, I can then exploit his wife. He's because he's only a, a laborer as far as I'm concerned. He doesn't have a name. Once you give a name that is of value to that person, you would not exploit. <clears throat> you just reduce them to numbers. It's easier to exploit. And I want to suggest, and in World Vision's work, we have seen this over and over again. We work with commercial sex workers <clears throat> on the Delhi-Ajmer High Road. And this is a, not one or two commercial sex workers, this is a community of commercial sex workers. And we wanted to send one of our pride uh, members of our children's club, Kavita by name, we wanted to send her to Canada to represent us in one of the children's meetings. And we had to apply for a passport. The passport office said, sorry, we cannot issue a passport because we need to know Kavita's father's name. And which father's name would I give for a commercial sex work child? And for we struggled with this issue for a long time. As far as the system is concerned, Kavita does not exist. That is poverty. That is poverty. 
poverty is about real people with feelings struggling because they are not able to afford food today for their child. That is the level at which I think we need to engage. We owe it to the poor to engage at the identity level. And if our development response should be anywhere near sustainable, we need to graduate from simply talking about justice to talking about clarifying the identity of the poor. We need to look at that issue of identity. For too long, I think we've stayed with justice issues. We need to dig deeper and engage at the identity issues. And identity is about people's worldview, people's religion, people's faith, people's belief. And I want to suggest that's an issue that we need to struggle with. The fourth issue and the fourth nature about poverty is poverty is the captivity of the poor for generations in a web of lies. Powers, structures, and powerful have promoted these lies about various things, and the poor are captives in this. Today, I cannot do development if I do not challenge these lies and call it a bluff. Lie about power. Lie about caste. Lie about their birth. Lie about their value to the system. Someone said, my colleague Desmond Diabrio said, the only mistake a poor child did was to select the wrong parents. And that is, the mis that is the bluff that we need to unpack and challenge that. Doesn't matter what your birth is, you need to look at a new future, a possibility that your, your future can be different from your past. And if you walk into any of my communities we work with and ask the question, why are you poor to any poor person, there would come a time in the answers where they would say, I am poor because of who I am. What do you do when, when that happens? Can you change who I am? Can you change the family in which I was born at that time? Can I change the community in which I was born? The rest of it is all window dressing then. If I do not address issues of identity and lies. So I want to suggest that development is really about truth encounter, raising the question of meaning, challenging the meaning that the world has given in such a way that they'll keep the powerful powerful. We need to challenge those lies. And development, sustainable development is about challenging those lies. And the final piece that I want to place before you for your consideration is that poverty is about powerful and the structures and the system playing God in the lives of the poor. Very often, and development organizations, we also have the same temptation. We can easily play God in the lives of the poor. You know, if you come into my community, the word they would say is, Aap Bhagwan hai. You are God. You are God to me. And at that point, it takes a lot of character and courage to say, I am not God. I am like you. I am like you. I have just come to serve you. I am not God. The structures and the systems and the powerful play God in the lives of the poor. And that's why we have poverty. And if development ma ma should matter, we need to challenge this tendency to play God. What is the alternative that the development industry brings to the table? It's an important question. If you do not have an alternative, we are just simply doing window dressing. And I close with this. A few years ago, not years, last year I was in this community. The community in my language is called Manganyam. Manganyam means high dignity, high level of dignity. And there were a group of men playing on the streets. They were playing these uh, seeds with the seeds. They play games and gamble. So I asked them, 
what is the meaning meaning of the name what is the name of your village and they said manganyam and i asked them what is the meaning of your village name i thought they will explain saying high higher standards of dignity and dignity with pride they would say very promptly they said if you want to know the meaning there is a pujari there there is a hindu priest on the main road please ask him he only knows about us when the right to describe your reality is given to someone else then that someone else is playing god in the lives of the poor what is the development industry's response to this aspect of poverty thank you very much thank you last but not least we have uh, shama parera a former guardian journalist and tv presenter most recently uh, she has written for the daily telegraph and the independent on sunday on issues around education and obesity she has put her interest in education to use and spends part of her time working with university students who have language and writing problems she's a contributor to radio programs such as women's hour and saturday live and is currently working on her fourth novel Thank thanks you. obviously got a very long intro there just to, to try and make me sound sort of vaguely legitimate on this panel um, it was very interesting listening to what was being said because earlier this year i was in sri lanka which is where i come from um, and it was my first time back since the tsunami and while we were sort of going around the southern coastline, it struck me that the Buddhism in Sri Lanka affects the way that the people there respond to everything. So they have a tsunami, they lose 40,000 people or whatever, and you know they just get on with it because it's karma. It's happened, they will move on to a higher plane, and so there's no sort of huge outcry as there was in New Orleans when, when the water came in. Um, the Sri Lankans just sort of passively get on with it, and they're very thankful for all the help that comes in and one of the most uh, sort of poignant moments was going to my mother's old school in Martha and finding that World Vision were rebuilding it. Um, and it just struck me then that this juxtaposition of Buddhist ideology with Christian ideology, which is all about sort of getting things done and Buddhism is all about being accepting, was a, a, a wonderful example of how faith-based organizations can work for all faiths. And so I come to this debate with some trepidation to think that there is any kind of uh, suggestion that faith-based organizations should be engaging actually on the basis of their faiths, because I had always taken it for granted that organizations like CAFOD or uh, Christian Aid or Islamic Relief were not taking their faith out, but actually acting on their faith, which was to help other people around the world. But it was not, the driving force was the spirituality, but not the need to bring other people into their faith. And so it slightly worries me that we're discussing here the connection between the organizations and the people that they're dealing with, as if there should be more than a wish to help and a wish to change outcomes for, for those people. Um, it, you know, it, it's very interesting that Shahid was saying uh, all these faith-based organizations who are providing more than 50% of the help in Africa, you know, our government hasn't even managed to give the money that it pledged at that big African uh, 
conference that we had a couple of years ago of giving money to Africa, everybody pledging money, well, we haven't managed to do ours, so thank goodness, thank God, for faith-based organisations. But it seems to me that on an everyday level, your faith is an individual choice, uh, and development is actually about the greater good, irrespective uh, of individual choice, which has to be factored in, individual need and individual culture and individual faith have to be factored in, but when it comes to development, if faith-based organisations are getting involved in development, it is the greater good that matters. And I think you touched on that there, which, which was talking about spirituality being uh, available in many forms. And when our government does ignore those people saying, what about our schools, uh, what about our hospitals, and put billions into the pot for overseas development, that is the most wonderful gesture of spirituality. It's, it's, a, it's a communal spirituality. And um, I think you can trace that back to faith. So you can say that actually the glory days of faith are over for many of us. But what's been left is this wonderful morality, which has been absorbed by society and continues to be perpetuated in government policy, not as, as I say, it doesn't always deliver. And I shall remember that about tolerance, Shahid, when I'm dealing with Glenda Jackson. Um, but it, it, is, it, is, it is very important um, that we actually see, talking about commonalities, the commonalities between faith-based organisations and governments. I think it's terribly important as well that if faith-based organisations are to continue and to move further into this field, um, they are also seen to kick up a fuss when uh, governments and peoples with whom they are working, even if they are of the same faith, are acting in ways that are unacceptable. Um, but I think when you start mixing faith and politics beyond that, uh, you're asking for trouble. And that's my view. I'm delighted to see what anybody else has to say about it. Thank you very much. Now we have Caroline with Mike at the ready. Uh, who has a question or a comment? Hi, uh, Paul Cook, Head of Policy at Tier Fund. We're a Christian Relief and Development Agency based in the UK. Um, we're very much about kind of churches, north and south, and kind of mobilising and equipping those churches to engage in poverty. I think it's some interesting comments about the UK and the West, and about how in our reality, and, and speaking as a kind of white middle class Westerner, um, faith is perhaps something that most people don't currently have. But in the vast majority of countries where we're operating, where we're working, faith is a defining reality for most people's lives. And so something like the churches and other local faith-based groups are in communities, they're at the grassroots, they're indigenous, they're long-lasting, they're not NGOs parachuted in from outside. So I think as we engage as Westerners, we have to remember that the communities in which we engage, faith remains very real in a way that perhaps it isn't in the West, widespread as it is today. So I think there's, there's perhaps a question of, um, I totally do agree with Dr. Christian that if we are going to engage with development, we have to engage with faith because that's such a massive defining reality for most of the communities with which we're working. So maybe a question for the panel would be, is there one thing that uh, governments could do better to engage with faith communities? And is there perhaps one thing that faith communities could do better to engage with governments as we together work in development? Maybe given the reference to government, Shahid, you could answer that one first. Yeah, sure. I mean, firstly, obviously, I've got to correct something. I mean, it's completely false to say this government isn't delivering on its pledge at Glen Eagles. Completely false. And I know that it was innocently made, and I take it in that spirit. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the question was about faith and government. Who, who asked the question? Sorry. Yeah. 
I was actually looking for a piece of paper that would have been helpful, but I couldn't find it. But I think one of the other interesting things, and I'll just ignore your question for one second. One of the other, <laughs> one of the other really interesting things, actually, is just the levels of awareness of the work of DFID. I mean, you know, you spoke about these wonderful organisations, and what you perhaps don't know is that we part from nearly every one of these wonderful organisations, hundreds of millions of pounds each year. And so, you know, this is really your responsibility as well, I think. This is, this is where it blatantly becomes obvious that it's, you haven't been perhaps that good at talking up some of the work that we're doing with you in partnership. And that's one of the challenges we have as we move forward. Now, coming to your question, it was too tricky a question to answer off the cuff. What I would say is I, I'm a great believer in actually, in actually doing a lot of interfaith work, but I don't think it should just be uh, interfaith. It's people who perhaps don't have a religious faith as well. I think that becomes really, really powerful because everybody can, everybody can see that this partnership, this entity, actually reflects society as a whole. And I think people are sometimes quite suspicious of faith-based organisations. No matter what they say, there's a belief somehow that they want to target a certain group of people, they want to target vulnerable people in the way that you say that they ought not to. But there is that belief there. And I think sometimes people have more confidence when they see them working together. But I wouldn't exclude organisations that weren't of any religious faith, but had faith in international development and doing good work. So in, in, in terms of your, your question, I haven't answered it. But, uh, but I, I, I'll think about that and reflect on it. Oh. We, we had a similar engagement with the Canadian International Development Agency, uh, and I think World Vision played a key role in that. Uh, one I would urge is that uh, the stepmotherly treatment that is often given to faith issues within the uh, development agenda of the government, uh, I think we need to continue these kinds of debates. It's critical that we don't just simply say, okay, do a little piece there and carry on with business as usual. This is critical for our understanding of development and I think we need to continue these debates. The other which I think when government to government grants are coming and speaking from the other side is to really push for civil society engagement at the, at the, in our countries. That we really ask the civil society, it doesn't matter whether it's faith or non-faith based and taking Dr. Hani's, uh, maybe there's nothing called faith and non-faith based organizations, but getting civil societies into go holding governments accountable to civil societies. World Vision India is on the planning commission of India. Uh, and uh, one of those things that we have been pushing is for the role of civil society to uh, be part of evaluating government programs. And the government in India has been very, become very responsive on that. And I think there is probably a day and age I think we really need to push hard the debate and the role of civil societies in government grants. Did you want to say something about I that? I think uh, faith-based organization <coughs> can demonstrate to government and public. I, of course, I don't uh, accept the faith-based or non-faith-based. This actually, uh, but as uh, responding to your question, should demonstrate that they work purely for the alleviation of poverty of people not to try to use the vulnerability of the people by converting them, whether they are Muslims or non-Muslims. I am against, as I mentioned, strongly against using or, uh, this vulnerability 
and actually converting people. What do you call it in Christianity? Rice, rice, Christmas? I don't know. Anything rice. else? <coughs> rice, Christmas, rice, Eid, whatever you call it, for, for all the religions. It is absolutely unethical for me as a Muslim, and they claim this is wrong. And this is what I want the government to be convinced, maybe uh, uh, Shahid Malik is here as a member of the government. I said, I want him to see that we are more transparent than the government themselves when we deliver the, 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 the goods to the people themselves. The, our agenda is purely humanitarian. Our agenda is to the point, focal with the development, relief, whatever it is, for the people and let the people to make their choices. And they have a verse in the Quran which is said, uh, to feed out of love. You know the word out of love? Whom? The needy, the, the, the orphans, and the prisoners of war. And they had a meeting with uh, uh, Lord Kerry in, in, in Dublin uh, two years ago. And he told me, is your God truly said that out of love to feed the prisoners of war who are your enemies? I said, yes. He put some doubts in my mind, so I went back to read the Quran again to clarify the, the message. This is out of love. You have somebody who was trying to kill your family yesterday and he is a prisoner of war today, and now you, you treat him nicely because this is your duty. And this is the faith we want. Not the faith, actually, which actually Shahid was talking about changing people, spreading hatred, spreading ills, dividing the community. This is the faith which is at the heart of every and each one of us in this room. All of you are faithful, whether they are Christian, Muslim, Jews, or you claim, or, or they claim, not you, atheist or animist or whatever it is, faithful. Because what we need to say that if you save a life, this is my, in my belief, and this is what God told me to say, is as equivalent as you save all humanity. And God never mentioned life is to be Christian life, or a Muslim life, or a Jewish life, or a Stafaria life. A life of a human being. Human being is the most sacred creation of God on earth. This strand of the argument reminds me that, uh, as many of you will know, early in the Bush administration, uh, they changed the the way aid was given around the world, and they and they they attached strings to the to the aid that was given, and basically attempting to impose the values of fundamentalist Christians in the United States on communities in Africa, for example, so that you could get you could get development money, but you couldn't have couldn't go to family planning, it couldn't go to things like that that the that the fundamentalist Christians in the United States were opposed to. Uh, that seems to me to be a dangerous example of of faith and government coming together. Yes, please. Thank you very much. My name is Christine Allen. I'm the director of Progressio, which is an interdependent um, international Catholic organisation, but independent of the church and uh, from a more progressive position, perhaps. We work with people of all faiths and none um, in 13 countries around the world. My question, I think, follows on from that, which is a, a little bit about unpacking a bit more this relationship between religion and politics. Um, I was thinking about the infamous quote from um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu about, I don't know which Bible people are reading when they say religion and politics don't mix. And I think a lot of the things that um, Dr. Giacomo has, has, talk, has, has mentioned has struck some chords in my mind. One of the things that often 
um, faith-based organizations or religious organizations get criticized for is they're often involved in what might be called welfare models of relieving poverty. Um, we in Progressio are going much more towards a, a liberation kind of model, which is exactly the points that you were talking about, Dr. Jayakuma, about seeking to challenge the structures, seeking to go beyond the, and asking why people are poor. And, and for me, tackling poverty, tackling and building sustainable development is inherently a political task. But there are those issues, as, as you just highlighted, where politics and religion can be dangerous. So I'd just like the panel to reflect on that a little bit more, if you might. Oh, well, I have a view, but not necessarily in terms of uh, international development. Uh, but I, d I don't think faith and politics work very well together when we have a president who is directed by God to invade a country uh, with uh, a completely different cultural and faith system to show no respect at all for those the needs of the people there. Uh, and to carry on roughshod, I don't think you know politics and faith necessarily mix when uh, we have prime ministers who send their children to faith schools while denying other people the right to open faith schools. Um, I, my view generally is is just as a punter, a commentator, uh, that politics and faith tend to lead to even greater hypocrisies than they do on their own. Very briefly, with respect to proselytising and evangelical organisations, we don't fund them. That's, we've got very strict criteria on that. Uh, so if anybody was uh, had any thoughts in that area, that would clear that. With respect to politics and religion, I kind of agree in the sense that your personal religion, uh, it's very hard actually to, to detach it from who you are. Even if you're in a role as a, as a minister, how can you detach your religion? But people do, on occasions, have to do that. Now, we, I'll give you, I mean, there's, there's numerous examples. Actually, I won't give you those examples because it's talking about other cabinet colleagues, but, uh, <laughs> so we'll leave those for now. And, uh, but, but what I would say is that in an ideal world, your power structure, wherever it is, ought to reflect society. But no individual ought to represent a group that they belong to. So yes, I'm a Muslim, but I don't represent Muslims. I represent everybody in my constituency, no matter what religion they have, or if they're not of any religious faith. In my duty as a, as a minister, I represent this country and its interests above any other country, including Muslim countries because that's my role. So I think, having said that, there are all the, the things that are, the, the common things that we've spoken about, selflessness, the, the, the need to want to do good. And I think where you have that kind of commonality between your faith and your role, then that can actually act as a, a catalyst and a driver for you to do even more. But I do think that uh, you can't put all your faith into your role in government or elsewhere, otherwise you wouldn't be able to do that job effectively. But in Parliament, we don't want a Parliament where people represent, either women represent women or ethnic minorities represent ethnic minorities or Christians represent Christians. But by having all those different groups roughly proportionate in a Parliament, you would hope that the policies that come out actually impact on everybody roughly equally. Do you want to say anything yeah, or should we move on? Do just you? on the issue yeah. of... Um, 
faith in politics. So I think it's naive to assume that when we deal with issues of poverty, somehow you can poverty somehow you can keep out politics. There is no way you can keep off politics when it addresses issues of poverty because this is about power structure systems that have created chronic poverty for the, for generations. I would like to say that. The, the challenge is, how do you do this? Uh, what is the role of the people, uh, the process that we use? Uh, one of the things that World Vision India has done in the last few years has really been equipping women to become members of the local self-government, panchayats. So today, they are sitting there deciding the local government policies for themselves. I think we need to start addressing the issue, the mechanism, the process, much more intentionally rather than taking strong positions on views on certain positions, uh, the ones like Bush probably uh, demonstrates for us. Uh, I think we need to really allow the process to dictate the position rather than the position dictating and shaping the process. That's one. On the issue of proselytism, what is conversion, what has helped us a lot is it's not just simply enough to say that we are not we do not believe in proselytism, which is true of our vision. Our position on conversion is that we will not manipulate anybody's vulnerability, not out of respect for the vulnerable, but really out of respect for the God we believe, because he is not for sale. He is not for bargaining. And that has helped a lot within my, with my colleagues. We do not undersell our God uh, pretty easily. <laughs> Uh, because he is not available for sale. And that is why we do not convert, do not manipulate people's vulnerability. I think that's the position I think, that has helped a lot in my colleagues, rather than just simply saying, oh, the policy says no proselytism. We have gone beyond that, to say our God is not for sale. Uh, and that is how precious our God is. Thank you. There was a question over here. Yeah. Ben Rich, I work with a wide variety of different faith organizations. I was at a um, meeting last night of uh, Jewish organizations discussing uh, Jewish leadership and uh, the success of Jewish organizations. And out of that arose the figure that we've two and a half thousand Jewish organizations for a population of about 250,000 uh, uh, people. We, we had about one organization for every hundred people and no wonder a number of them didn't work very well and uh, were under supported and I find myself coming back to that conversation a little bit looking around this room and uh, the range of organizations from uh, both a range of faces at faiths and within the same faith um, on the list and asking myself quite why uh, that range of organizations exist why, although I know there's, there's, there's huge cooperation, there isn't the opportunity to bring many of those organizations together. And it's, it seems to me that behind that, despite the motivations, uh, which are no doubt extremely good, it's inevitable that there's a suspicion of a need for a degree of, if you like, purity in the delivery of the system and the delivery of the services. And with the need for purity in the way in which 
aid or financial support in whatever structure it might take, there comes a sense of the need to own the program on behalf of the charities. And that took me right back to the comments of uh, Dr. Jaikuma, because it seems to me that when you start talking about power relationships as central, and I agree entirely with that, the, the need for so many charities to own their little bit of the aid debate is actually in itself, maybe unintentionally, taking away the very power that we need to give people to succeed. I think you have, uh, it's right, I believe that some of the organization and the focus on the organization and the control, not on the people themselves. That's why it was one of the signs of the downfall of such organizations. Once you lose the track on the beneficiary themselves, you go, uh, you lose, you lose the momentum. And this is happening not only on the faith-based organization, on a organization, but on all the organizations. You see, and this is, you find, you find in, in the history of the development of the civil society movement, the, the rise and the downfall of organization because they lost the focus on the delivery. The delivery is the most important element for making people happy with you. Because there are, for, for, for myself, I believe strongly, it's not the donor who owns the organization. It is the beneficiary and the poor who owns the organization. He is entitled by God's will to every money in your pocket without, without begging you, without begging me. This, this is where we came from. I don't have to stretch my hand to beg because I'm a poor man because I'm a widow, because I'm an orphan, because I'm a homeless, because I'm a sick, because I'm old. I have a right in your money because God gave you the money to give it to me. This is the relationship between the poor. This is the power of uh, the, the struggle of power between the rich and the poor. You have the money to give it to me. I shouldn't beg from you. And actually, once we lose this and we focus on our little isms or organizations, we, this is a fatal. And this happened to cross-section. I strongly believe in it. And it happens and it will be happening because this is a sign of the decline of the strong organization which will become weaker later on. I think we can do one question and uh, then we're going to have to end because some people have trains to catch, but we will have until 8 o'clock to, to actually mingle and talk. But is there a question? Louise Radnowski, I'm here out of interest actually. Uh, Mr. McGuire touched on the elephant in the room here, which might be the intersection between faith and international development on certain policy issues. And I think my question might be how faith organizations can work with secular organizations who are concerned with international development on these difficult problems, such as birth control or safe abortion or safer sex. Now, Amnesty International this year has taken a fairly bold or radical stance, depending on how you see it, towards adopting a, a, a policy on one of these very difficult questions. It's an organization with a lot of religious members and it's facing a split. Do you think you're on a collision course or do you think that this issue can be resolved? Dr. Jai Kumar, would you like to answer that? Yeah, that's, that's uh, some of our struggles on these issues. Uh, and just speaking for World Vision, uh, uh, this just World Vision India experience, and I want to respond to the earlier comment. The good news is there are in our countries there are many expressions of alliances and networks that are emerging. It doesn't matter where the funding is coming from. That has been something that we need to celebrate. And uh, our uh, work with secular NGOs like World Vision in India has is part of strategic alliances within the country on various issues. <laughs> 
relating to MDG and things like that. Our challenge is World Vision being an operational organization whose staff live among the poor. We don't just simply visit the poor and come back. Our staff live among the poor 24 hours, 7 days. What does it mean to take a stand on an issue? Because we pay with life, not just simply we don't leave the community and come off. Our, our life is at stake. That is our expression of community accountability. So I have 1,700 staff, majority of them living with their families among the poor today. What does it mean for an operational organization like World Vision to take up stand, which within quotes might be controversial, within quotes might hurt us, but not just hurt us as an organization, but hurt my staff out there. Uh, that is a challenge and it's not easy to answer those questions, but World Vision is working uh, with networks and alliances on some of these very controversial issues. We've taken many of these issues with the government, uh, whether it is uh, the more recent ones for us is the issue of uh, raising the age of child and child labor from 14 to 18 and making compulsory education part of a state of a central government <coughs> decision rather than simply allowing it to state for state governments. We've taken very strong positions along with other organizations in the country. We just have one quick word from Dr. Hani and then we'll turn it over to Julia again. I come back to the fundamental issue of the community, the family. For me, the family is the cornerstone of the society, of a country, of humanity. If I have a good family, I have a good community, I have a good nation, I have a good future, good future generation. Some of what we call themselves new faith-based secular organization have their values. By imposing your values on others is not good enough. We have to share the values. When we give technology to, to things which is not a part of the nature of man, you see sometimes people could be splitting the hair. So if we focus on the value of the family, as a secular organization, and as other organizations will know which family we can bring out to the community. And we really need to look at our families, to look at the future generation of our country. Do we have all our country people, the younger, the younger generation, to be coming from a single parent family? This is a big problem facing any government, whether in the West or in the East. And this is the value. I don't like to call people who are behind such values. I don't want like to see the children running on, on, on the street or one young gay, gay, girl with a three or four kids who are heartbroken because it's been abused. This is where I came as a community a worker in the community. When we look at what uh, uh, safe sex and uh, safe abortion and safe, 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 we can make everything safe. But the one who will be suffering really is the woman. Because the woman is the one who is badly abused by this kind of safety margin which you make to be very safe. If we agree together on building a family, let us look at what family would like to bring for the future of our country. Good. Thank you very much. Julia. Well, I just wanted to close by saying that in my haste to open the proceedings, I in fact failed to say that Islamic Relief is also a, a, a partner of ours in this evening's event. And for those of you that are interested in probing a bit further the way this issue is discussed and debated in the UK, Editorial Intelligence has compiled a bespoke 
report on this topic and you can really contact us through our website to find out whether you would like more information on that. But for now, we will send all of you who've attended the links to the podcast and I would just like to ask you to raise your hands to thank our speakers and indeed our chair. Thank you. Thank you.